Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, as part of the global news investigation, Canadian intelligence has warned Trudeau that China is allegedly targeting Canada with a sweeping campaign of foreign interference. What do we need to do to protect ourselves? Education support workers in the province are back at the bargaining table today trying to work out a deal. How that goes? Well, we'll find out from Colin DeMello. And we get the main takeaways from the 2022 midterm elections south of the border with Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program... We talked with uh, global investigative reporter Sam Cooper uh, with a rather startling revelation, and and that, of course, is about Chinese involvement, and I'd prefer to call it Chinese interference in Canadian elections. Uh, As part of the global investigation, uh, Sam found out that uh, sources were telling the Prime Minister to and basically warning him of Canadian intelligence that China is allegedly targeting Canada with a sweeping campaign of foreign interference. Here's some of Sam Cooper's report. Sources tell Global News that Canada's spy agency, CSIS, first reported the allegations to the Prime Minister and several members of his cabinet in January, chief among the allegations, a claim that China used its Toronto consulate during the 2019 federal election to fund an underground network of at least 11 candidates, all with suspected ties to the Chinese Communist Party. Briefings and memos detailed other examples of China's alleged efforts to sway Canada's democracy including agents placed in the offices of members of parliament and campaigns targeting those Canadians seen as threats by the Chinese government. In a statement, CSIS confirmed that the Chinese Communist Party is using all the tools at its disposal to carry out activities that pose a direct threat to Canada's national security and sovereignty. Uh, uh, Thank you, Sam. And let's just put this in clear terms for you. This is not something that might happen. This is something that is already happening. And uh, the Prime Minister and the the Cabinet should be well aware of this and we should be taking action on this. Joining us to talk about this is Marcus Kolga. Marcus is the Director of DisinfoWatch.org and also a Senior Fellow with the MacDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Marcus, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to have you on a very important issue today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Bill, and, and hello from sunny Vilnius, Lithuania. Now, what are you doing over there? Uh, I am uh, participating in a couple of conferences that are actually looking at how to defend our democracies uh, from the threat of uh, foreign authoritarians, the, the exact kind of stuff that uh, Sam uh, Sam Cooper reported on in, in his report and uh, the same sort of interference that we've seen from Russia and the United States, Canada, and so many other places. Uh, well, I'm glad you put this in perspective. This is not a Canada-only problem. I know we know that there's concern about uh, Chinese and Russian elements trying to infiltrate American politics and, and, and other uh, countries in the UK. We've heard those stories as well. So this is, this is a global problem, and I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised that the, the heads are getting together here to try to find some solutions to this, because as I mentioned just before you joined us, this is happening. This isn't say, well, hey, this could actually go on here. We better be careful. Uh, we've got to yeah. root it out at this stage. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, Bill. And look, we, our intelligence agencies, uh, civil society experts like myself, have been warning Canadians and the Canadian government of this threat uh, for the past number of years. In fact, I started writing about this already uh, in, in around 2012, 2013, uh, because I saw the threat in Europe uh, and, and the growth of that threat. Um, th- but this report that Sam Cooper has, has published is uh is extremely serious uh you know i think that a lot of us again reading between the lines and some of these 
public reports that CSIS and CSE has put out, uh, I think we've all, all been warned, sufficiently warned, that, that there is uh, this interference going on. But the scope of this, um, the fact that he has brought a shed a light, a very stark light, on facts of how China is uh, directly seeking, and not just seeking, but is actively undermining our democracy, is quite frankly uh, quite shocking. And I think that the government needs to take very, very quick action because uh, the effect of this, um, the effect of the report, the fact that uh, we know that China has been doing this, it threatens to erode public trust in our elections, our democratic processes, our institutions. And so we need to get to the bottom of this. We need accountability right away. And I'll tell you, uh, the fact that this, uh, this, re this report came out three years after the incidents happened is also quite shocking. Why was the Prime Minister only informed of this in January? Why was he not informed of this when it was happening? Did CSIS only find out about it later or was it, did they know about when it was happening, about it when it was happening? Um, so there are a lot of questions here, but the, the government really needs to start moving on this file very, very quickly. Uh, do they take this stuff seriously? I mean, because as you say, you've been talking about this for almost 10 years now. <sighs> Uh, others have tried to raise the red flag, and, and I heard yeah. the Prime Minister's comments yesterday uh, when he was uh, presented with this. Well, the, he has the information, but when the uh, the global inf the report came his way, and he says, yeah, we, we're aware that China and some other places are playing around with our institutions. It's the phrase he This is not playing. This is a threat to our national security. Yeah, well, it wasn't just that. He said that, that China is playing games. Uh, this yeah. is not a game. The Chinese government doesn't see this as a game. Um, the, the Chinese government is engaging in, in uh, weaponizing information and influence, again, to undermine the core foundations of our democracy. Um, there is nothing funny or fun about that. Um, it, is, uh, it is a serious national security threat um, that requires an immediate response. And, you know, one of those first the first things that I, I think that the government needs to be doing is ordering a formal uh, and sweeping investigation. Um, if it's found, if it's truly found that Chinese government money was in fact used by 11 or more candidates, and if laws were broken, uh, charges need to be laid. If there were Chinese agents, as alleged in the report, who were placed uh, on the staff of members of parliament uh, or any of those candidates uh, that, were, that might, might have received funds, uh, and if they broke laws, they need to be charged. And I would argue, most importantly, that if there is any sitting MP or MPP at the moment who was close to any of this activity, they need to be identified and they need to be they need to resign immediately for the good of our democracy. Well, I, I don't want to get into the names, but I'm told the names are in the report that CSIS gave to the Prime Minister. Uh, and mm -hmm. one, you're right, one MPP from the Toronto area apparently was uh, part of the conduit here where this money was flowing. And a number of MPs, uh, this, is, this, is, this is spy stuff. This is, this is like James Bond stuff, and I'm not trying to be flippant about this, uh, but it, it, it's actually happening. And, it, you know, I, as I was reading this last night, Marcus, I couldn't help but think of, like, the Manchurian candidate. You know, yeah. what better way? Put your people in there. Uh, at the highest level and, and try to influence policies and decisions. And, and that's really what they're doing here. And we don't know, I guess, at this stage how extensive this is. 
Right. We, we don't know that yet. I mean, this, this may be the tip of a much bigger iceberg. Um, and, and when you combine it with the other things that we've discovered, other um, uh, interference that China has been engaging in over the past couple of years, it does paint a very scary picture. You know, we know that there are at least three police stations, Chinese government police stations that are operating, uh, one in Toronto and, and two in Markham. They've been identified. Um, these police stations, we know that the Chinese government uh, could be using those police stations to in intimidate uh, Chinese speakers in Canada to try and control them, which also represents a direct threat to our democracy and the rights of those uh, Chinese Canadians. Um, we also know for a fact that China tried to directly interfere in the 2021 elections. So this is, you know, the 2021 wasn't the first time now we know that. It happened in 2019. Now, what we do know about 2021 is that the Chinese state media tried to inject uh, false narratives about uh, specific political parties in Canada in using their state media. There was also a clandestine campaign uh, to attack, in a, a coordinated campaign to attack uh, sitting incumbent MPs who, were, who had been critical of, uh, of the Chinese government. Um, and so when you put all this together, I mean, again, the, the, the picture it paints is, is quite scary. And, uh, you know, it sort of is, you know, James Bondish and, and quite uh, insidious, all of this. Um, it, it requires a very serious response. And I think we need to overhaul our entire um, intelligence system to ensure that our democracy and Canadians are, are protected uh, from this sort of interference. Because clearly, um, there are big enough loopholes that the Chinese government has exploited, perhaps to its benefit. One of the concerns here, just as we connect the dots, I'm glad you brought up about the, the greater security system, because we've heard stories over the last couple of months now, Marcus, uh, that, that the other partners in the Five Eyes, the UK, Australia, and the United Americans, are looking at Canada right now as the weak link, not just because we're not pulling our weight, but because we... Uh, are, are such a porous security system here uh, that apparently the Iranians, the Russians, and the Chinese can kind of come and go as they please here. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there's another report that sort of, I mean, I think Canadian media rep uh, reported on it, but very lightly. Um, the Norwegians arrested a, a, a man who had been working in one of their universities in, in the Arctic, uh, and charged him with espionage. It turns out this this person who was who had claimed that he was a, a Brazilian student um, was actually a Russian GRU colonel. Now, what's the Canadian connection to this is actually uh, quite shocking. Uh, this person, this GRU colonel, had been placed in Canada, um, had earned uh, his degree at Carleton University. Um, and went went on, on uh, to uh, the University of Calgary and uh, did his master's there and actually worked on a uh, at least one political campaign in the Calgary area. This is a GRU colonel. This is military intelligence. This agent was operating freely in Canada. So when you when you when you connect this with uh, what we're hearing about uh, China, yeah, I, I think that our allies uh, when they see these reports are are probably quite concerned and wondering um, how uh, our intelligence system is working or how it's actually failing us. Um, you know, this needs a, a broader investigation as well. Does CSIS have the resources it needs? Is it thin on resources? Does it need more? Are our laws insufficient? You know, clearly there, as I mentioned earlier, there, there are uh, enough loopholes 
that the uh, Chinese government, it seems the Russians are exploiting those as well. Uh, so we really need to take a, a broader look uh, at, our, at our entire intelligence system and our national security uh, to make sure that uh, our, these foreign authoritarians aren't able to exploit it and, uh, and undermine and subvert uh, our democratic processes and, and quite frankly, undermine the, the trust and the, the cohesion, which is the ultimate uh, uh, goal that they have is to undermine the cohesion of our society and, and break down the trust within it. Do we have that focus? I know that when we talked in the past about some of the activities of CSIS and, and they, that some would suggest they're spending a lot of time focusing on terrorism and maybe maybe that's legitimate and that, that needs to happen, certainly, because that's a threat yeah. too. But espionage and counter-espionage uh, doesn't get talked about a whole lot and it happens all the time. And, it's, and this is not new either. And, and, you know, you just described a perfect example of it. You know, the, the, the Russian agents in this country are not walking around in trench coats and standing like Boris and Natasha. Uh, they're people that are ingrained in our society and in our communities. And, uh, you know, CSIS, well, our, all of our agencies have to do a better job. Yeah. Well, look, we wouldn't have known about this Russian agent had it, had it not been for the Norwegians catching him. You know, had the Norwegians not caught him, we would still, have, you know, just assume that he this was some Brazilian guy uh, that studied at our universities, and the, it, it begs the question: How many others are there? So you know, and I, I think that CSIS, uh, you know, I think they're doing all that they probably can. Um, you know, they they have uh, considerable restrictions on the work that they're doing. Um, the fact that this uh, information was leaked out from the CSIS report is actually quite surprising because it's they run a pretty tight ship over there, and they don't let this sort of information leak out. Um, but I would, I would argue that maybe it's time to reform some of those restrictions, give them a little bit more power, uh, allow them to um, speak publicly when they see these sorts of threats rather than waiting for um, some approval from cabinet um, so, it, so that Canadians are aware uh, of these threats when they're happening. It, it doesn't help us, quite frankly, to learn about this three, three years later. Um, you know, we need, when these sorts of, uh, when foreign agents, uh, foreign authoritarian regimes are engaging in this sort of interference activity, we need to find, we need to know about it when it's happening um, so that we can make the right political decisions, uh, our government can make the right decisions in order to protect our democracy. Um, so, you know, it's, I guess it's good that we know this now, but uh, three years later is too late. We need to make sure that we, our intelligence communities, our authorities have the tools uh, to expose these threats as they're happening so that our democracy isn't undermined. Well, I, I know we're just about out of time, but this whole thing reminds me of, the, well, the two uh, Chinese-Canadian uh, scientists that were working in the Winnipeg area on COVID vaccines and, and the virus itself, all of a sudden in the middle of the night just scooted up and they were gone. <laughs> and they ended yeah. up back in China. And, you know, and somebody finally, hey, two and two, maybe they were agents. Yeah, maybe they were. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, we've got to do a better job of it. That's all there is to it. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, you got to get nope. back to your conference, uh, Mark. That's right. Salvage, thank you for the, for the time today. I really do appreciate it. Let's stay in touch. Anytime, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Take care, Marcus Kolga, director of DisinfoWatch and senior fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute, and invite right over there in Eastern Europe right now at one of these conferences, deciding and trying to develop some strategies on what we and other Western nations can do to protect ourselves against this kind of espionage. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
we seem to have diffused a very volatile situation uh, when uh, the Ford government uh, basically stepped back from their threat to, uh, first of all, use the notwithstanding clause and, of course, the back-to-work legislation. And we saw, well, we carried those press conferences right here on the program. So you heard the, the Premier and the Education Minister talk about that and, of course, the union representatives. Here's the thing, though. As, as difficult as that was, and it was pretty tight there for the last three or four days heading into that session, uh, now they got to negotiate a contract. And that's the difficult part because uh, there's still some differences that have to be worked out. Uh, bring us up to speed on what's happening. Please to welcome back to the program Colin DeMello. Colin, of course, is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Uh, Colin, welcome to the show. Good to have you with us again today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, listen, before we get into the negotiations or where they are right now, there's a, 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 a sticky little issue here that I want. That I know you've been talking about, and I just wanted to bring it to our listeners' attention. Uh, when the Premier announced that he was going to pull this back and, and they were going to you know, take back the legislation, etc., he said we were going to do it right away. Uh, technically, he can't do that, can he? Well, no, not right now, and that's because the legislature isn't sitting. So historically, MPPs always take uh, a break around this week, Remembrance Day week, yeah. uh, because they have to be out in their constituencies, right? And they've got to do that constituency sure. work. And so as a result, the legislature isn't sitting right now. Now, the premier has one of two options. He could either wait until next Monday to do it, which is the option he's taking, or he could recall the legislature back. They could just do it with an, um, uh, you know, a cabinet order uh, to call the legislature back. Uh, the government is not taking that option, and it, it seems like the union is a bit upset about it because the union seems to be indicating that they were told it would be repealed immediately, and it's not being repealed immediately, yet the union has already backed down on its strike action. So I think they're, they're kind of looking at the government with a bit of suspicion right now. I uh, wonder why. I mean, how could they possibly be skeptical? These two sides have gotten along so well over the years. Uh, but uh, he said sarcastically. Uh, but but I, I've, I noticed the same sense of, of, of frustration there from some of the union members when they looked at this. I mean, they're kind of looking at this and say, wait a minute. Uh, and, and, you know, because of this technicality. And, and that's the way the government's characterizing it. It's just a technicality. You know, we'll do this on Monday. Uh, would you be surprised if the union was a little reticent to actually sit down and talk then until this actually gets done? Well, listen, this is this is one of the reasons that the union wanted all of this in writing. Remember, on Monday, yeah. when the premier had made his promise that he was going to pull back the legislation, the union refused to accept it until they got it specifically in writing. Uh, you know, and, and it was lawyers. It was government lawyers. It was union lawyers who sat down and, and hammered that out. So this is kind of, you know, a legally binding contract, if you, could, if you want to call it that, uh, between the union yeah, and, and well, the government for the government to pull yeah, and, and I don't you, think the you, province is necess- the province isn't going to renege on this because they know the the potential consequences for doing that. But at the end of the day, I mean, you know, they are still on thin ice with the union here, and the union could be in strike position at any point. So they could, you know, withdraw their services again if the government doesn't um, hurry this up. Uh, and if that were the case, and I know we're kind of going down the road of the hypothetical here, though, if if that were the case, or if the union just said, "Wait a second here, no, th- this is this isn't working." Uh, can the government reintroduce back-to-work legislation? Or, or is that is that verboten because of this deal? No, I mean, the government has in its power to do whatever it wants, right? I mean, if we if we look yeah, at, at this, let's say, a few weeks down the road, and, uh, you know, they're still arguing over a contract, and they can't come up with a, an, an agreement, well, the government could always reintroduce legislation to impose a contract and perhaps maybe avoid using the notwithstanding clause. Because remember back in 2012 when Dalton McGinty did it, uh, they were taken to court and they lost in court. And they had to, the government had to pay 
um, all these unions, uh, the, you know, these fees for for imposing that contract. But the the fees that they had to pay to the union were a lot less than what they saved in not giving them those huge contract increases. And so, you know, it was an overall net gain or net win for the government. So, you know, perhaps they might bring that out again. But I, I, I mean, I, I think once you've Touch the live wire, and you've gotten shocked. You know, I think the premier might be reticent to actually touch it again. Well, yeah, I mean, you've been reporting from the halls of Queens Park for a long, long time. Uh, what's your 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 spidey sense tell you about this? Is that the, the premier is sincere about this, and this is just a, a, a delay that he didn't really acknowledge or realize at the time you made the statement, or do you think there's something untoward happening here? Well, I, I mean, listen, you know, right after the election, they started talking about. Uh, the possibility of making teachers essential service workers. And they backed away from those yeah. ideas. I mean, they were looking at how to kind of limit or put a circle around the, the unions to avoid, um, you know, any kind of job action. This was the intent right from the very beginning. So, I mean, the unions have been questioning whether the government has been engaging in these negotiations in good faith. That, that will be, you know, forever an argument because there are going to be two sides and two sets of arguments on that. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, the government, you know, was was filled with this desire to make sure that schools weren't interrupted after the pandemic. Their methods, though, could be questionable. And the premier has yet to reveal who was it that approved this? Who was it that gave him the advice and told him that this was a good idea, whether it was the Minister of Education or the premier himself? Um, but, but we've seen in the past, particularly with the pandemic, once the premier is kind of faced with the consequences and widespread negative reaction, he's pretty quick to pull back. And so this is pretty, you know, on brand for the premier, right? Does something controversial, uh, sees an enormous amount of backlash and immediately pulls out tail between his legs, comes out, apologizes to everyone and says, you know, my bad, we won't do it again. It, 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 it's left to be seen whether the public will accept this ultimately as, uh, you know, the contrition that the premier is putting out there or whether they're they're looking at this as a, as a government making a colossal you know bungling error when they do sit down at the table interestingly enough there there will be a mediator as per uh, most of these negotiations like kind of a middle person to try to quell things down so i i, I figure that's probably going to be the, the the equalizer there to make sure that things don't get too heated on either side of the table uh, yeah no this is all being done through a mediator because you have to remember we're going back. It's almost like you have to delete last week from the calendar as if it, it didn't exist, right? Because we're going back to the way things were before the notwithstanding clause was introduced and, and the union went on strike. They were discussing everything solely through a mediator. And it's the mediator who's now uh, back at the bargaining table and making sure that the two sides are are, you know, kind of playing nice. So the government presented a contract offer yesterday. They wouldn't tell us exactly what it is, but they did say it was an improved offer, uh, really targeting those lowest income earners within uh, this, this particular union. And so they have to present their offer not to the union, but to the mediator, who then takes it to the union and tries to massage the union to see if they'll accept it or not. This is a very skilled mediator who's been able to you know, land a number of deals with uh, public sector unions before, and they're really hoping that he'll be able to pull it out this time. So, But this time around, though, uh, the union seems to have a bit of the upper hand because they've you know, barked and they've shown the premier that they can bite, and the premier seems to know that they will do it again um, you know, if this doesn't go their way. So I think they, they feel like they can maybe extract 
a little bit more from the province this time around. What's this going to do? I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but as, as you've been reporting, uh, I mentioned this on Monday, I said this is kind of like a, a trilogy, uh, because even if they solve this contract, the elementary school and secondary school teachers both have contracts coming up in the next little while, and they've already begun negotiations. Uh, does what the Premier did uh, with this particular uh, negotiation uh, affect that? Are they going to look at that and say, look, I don't care what he, he vows he's going to do to us, because he'll just back down? Or did they start to play hardball with the teachers? Well, I, I mean, it could go one of two ways. I mean, on one hand, the government could try to really hold the line and the, the teachers know that, you know, the government is willing to introduce a contract. I think it was the use of the notwithstanding clause that particularly yeah. set off this fuse. So if he doesn't use the notwithstanding clause, you know, would they be OK to fight it in court? Remember, I mean, you have to take in, into account Bill 124, which imposed a 1% wage cap on all public sector unions, right? So Bill 124 is being actively fought in court right now by a number of unions, including the education unions. So they, they didn't hold or threaten to hold a general strike for Bill 124. So if there is another piece of legislation that maybe limits their contract increases, but doesn't use the notwithstanding clause, perhaps they might not go you know, to that extent, all the way to the cliff or the edge of the cliff. At the same time, though, the unions do know they have now power in numbers. It's not just the teachers unions anymore. It is all of the unions, the public, the private sector, unions from Quebec that wanted to participate in the general strike next week. Um, they've got an enormous amount of weight and force and financial resources, most importantly, behind them. So they know that they might be able to get a little bit more out of the premier. I don't know if this is all going to devolve into a strike because parents might only tolerate one strike per bargaining session. So they may be on thin ice with parents. And ultimately, that's what it comes down to, right? If parents are not on your side, it doesn't matter what you do or what your bargaining position is. If parents aren't willing to tolerate what you're doing, then you've lost. And, and, and that ultimately is where this all will lie over the next few weeks and months. I guess the big takeaway here is we're uh, not anywhere near the finish line just yet, the uh, way things are going. Colin, a busy day for you today. Really appreciate you taking some time, and uh, we'll be watching for your reporting on this, of course, on Global News later on today. Thanks for this. My pleasure, as always. Thanks for having me. Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, south of the border is where everybody's looking right now. An election to determine control of Congress south of the border, of course. Uh, well, it started last night. They're still counting, though. Uh, and it's too close to call in many jurisdictions. A result that uh, goes against what a lot of the polls have been predicting, that it was going to be a Republican sweep. Uh, but it could spark concern for a looming announcement from, well, the country's former president. Global's Reggie Cicchini has the details. For weeks, Republicans had been predicted to take a majority in the U.S. House, and while it's still possible, the margins have thinned out after stronger-than-expected performances by Democrats. At the Senate level, at least one state has flipped blue after populist candidate John Fetterman defeated Dr. Mehmet Oz. Oz now joining a list of candidates backed by Donald Trump, who lost in their races, a move that could influence his looming decision to run, or the party's decision to back him, which could become a reality following a strong performance by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, widely expected to enter the 2024 race with a hefty fundraising list and solid base. The stakes in these midterms for Americans were high, from the economy to individuals' rights, but it will be days or possibly weeks before final results are crystal clear. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington.
So uh, what does this mean in the short term and in the long term for foreign policy, for domestic policy, for instance, and, and a number of other elements to this? Uh, to uh, answer these questions, please to welcome back to the program Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Elliot, thanks for the time on a, a very busy day today. I was going to say post-election, but they're still counting, so it's not over yet, is it? Definitely not. Good morning, Bill. Well, you know, for political scientists, this is catnip. So the um, <laughs> the election is by no means over. It clearly is taking a different direction than anybody had anticipated. The whole question going in was, is this going to be a Republican ripple or a wave or, as they were hoping, the Republicans, a tsunami? It looked very promising for the Republicans with high inflation with uh, President Biden's ratings underwater, with um, the economy really being the number one concern, apparently. So it looked like Joe Biden's presidency basically was going to be over today because the Republicans were going to have such an overwhelming sweep. It was not a tsunami. It was not a wave. It's definitely a ripple. Uh, Republicans are going to do very well in terms of, yes, they'll take the House, and we should talk more about that whether they can even hold this, uh, their current 50-50 uh, at the Senate remains in doubt, or at least an open question. Well, let's talk about the, the House of Representatives and some of the changes there. Uh, and then I want to get into the Donald Trump influence or lack of influence in sure. situations like this. Uh, for, for those who may not be totally familiar with the U.S. political situation, midterms, of course, are halfway through the four-year term of the president. And uh, the Congress is up for re-election and some of the senators in, in any given time. And invariably, I don't care who's in the White House, Republican or Democrat, the midterms is usually the people's opportunity to smack that administration and, and you know, say we're not pleased. Uh, they didn't get a smack last night. They got a little tap on the wrist, really. Yes, 100% uh, of the House of Representatives, 435, uh, are up for election, one-third of the Senate. Uh, that's how the U.S. Constitution works. Uh, so the... Um, <laughs> The expectation was, as happened under President Obama, that there would be a shellacking for Joe Biden. Uh, Obama lost, I think, was 62 seats to the Republicans in his midterm. The normal re reflection here is that the party that loses the presidential election is all fired up at the midterm, whereas the winner of the presidential election is relaxed, and therefore the party in power loses a lot of seats, some to a lot, uh, at the midterm, and that's that was fully the expectation, particularly with inflation having wiped out what looked to be a bump uh, for the Democrats midsummer after Roe v. Wade came down. It looked like the Democrats were going to do better than anticipated, but not you know it wouldn't it was billed as abortion versus inflation as the ballot question. That um, bump seemed to dissipate as inflation continued and. Yes, the Republicans were anticipating a really big night, and they did not get it. Let's talk about the Trump influence here. Uh, Donald Trump has been campaigning, well, somewhat successful for himself, but trying to endorse people like Dr. Oz and a number of other candidates, all of whom did very poorly for the most part. Uh, he wanted this, I think, Elliot, to, to be a big Republican win, that tsunami that you were talking about, and ride that wave to say, see, I did all this for the Republican Party, and now I'm running for president again. Uh, it didn't work out the way he wanted. Is that going to influence his choice? He, he said that there's a big announcement next week. On the 15th. Yes, the, uh, a lot of the candidates that he backed and he basically imposed on the Republican Party lost. Uh, a number have won. We have a, a segue to sideways that about 370 candidates for the Republican Party at all levels, state and local and 
and federal, uh, national, were deniers, and about half of those uh, did get elected. So there's a lot of, about a third of the Republican caucus about to enter, and it isn't finally settled in the total numbers, but about a third of the Republican caucus going into the House are election deniers. But in key states, over and over again, those people who were going to be managing the future elections because they were backed by Trump, they got defeated. We still are watching very carefully in places like Arizona. How does that affect Trump? He was indeed looking forward to a big springboard. He hinted broadly, now he's going to announce what he's been hinting at. Let's wait, all of his advisors said, wait until after the midterms. And so the midterms are over next week. Yes, I'm running for president. Will this affect that decision? The thumping win in Florida for DeSantis, uh, DeSantimonious as Trump is now calling him, that too is a big factor. The fact that somebody like DeSantis might actually challenge successfully Trump in a primary, or at least might enter a primary and do well, that's a sobering thought. So basically, Trump didn't do well on election night. Trumpism did Trumpism did very well on election night on the Republican side in terms of DeSantis. Will that dissuade him from running? I can't answer that question, but I tell you, Bill, he's got two good reasons to enter the race officially now. The first is he would like to foreclose DeSantis or anybody else from actually declaring against him, saying, don't even bother to declare your candidacy. Uh, I'm going to win the nomination for the Republican Party. There's nothing you can do about it. Get lost. That may be drawn into question now by DeSantis's victory and Trump's relative loss. But the second thing is, if he's the official candidate, it might make it a little more, um, there might be hesitancy to prosecute the former president who's now running once again for the many, uh, in the many criminal and civil cases now pending. I can't uh, predict which way that'll wash out for him. He has an absolute command over a large swath of the Republican Party, but he did not do well in this election. Elliot, we'll have to leave it there for now as uh, the dust starts to settle here. Much more conversation about this oh, as yeah, we get some of the final results. Thanks so much for this today, Elliot. Oh, you're very welcome. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, and lots more to come about the impact of this U.S. election in uh, the next couple of days and weeks, I guess, for that matter. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.